welcome back to the content lab. I'm feeling like kind of dramatic today, more so than usual. So yeah, welcome back to the content lab. I'm your host, Liz Moorhead, editorial director at Impact. And to my virtual left, I've got my partner in crime, my number one content boo, John Becker. How you doing? That sounded like that was your NPR voice. For a I couple, know. Like you always make fun of me for having an NPR voice. When you leaned in and did that, that was that was NPR. That was Terry Gross. So, you know, it's actually kind of funny. Um, my mom, I come from this. This voice is actually genetic. My mom has a very similar voice. And she also is known for her NPR voice when she wants to turn it on if she wants to. And I have inherited that trait. Welcome. We will now listen to a symphony of jazz dolphins from some of the South Pacific and their cover of Born to Run by Bruce Springsteen. Like, it feels like I'm talking to a different person. <laughs> no, I'm still the same idiot as usual. Okay. <laughs> still the same idiot. Don't worry about that. The fact that they trust me with anything at Impact is a miracle. How are you, John? What is up oh, in great. your world? You know, living through the COVID pandemic, you said early on in the pandemic, something like, what is this week 307 mm -hmm. and yeah that's kind of how it feels right now so right now both my kids are home because their school is closed um my wife is a teacher like her school is probably going to close but it hasn't closed yet but there are lots of cases it's a mess oh my gosh yeah one of our uh, co-workers Kristen Harold our director of demand generation she was sharing earlier this week I can't remember if you were in that meeting or not about how her husband is a teacher and they will say, oh, we're closed. Wait, just kidding, we're hybrid. Wait, now we're open again. Now we're closed again. Uh, I I can't, if you have a teacher in their life, in your life, please like give them a socially distant hug or like air high five from me. Cause I don't know how they're doing it. And all the parents at home who are now having to do all this homeschooling in addition, like I can barely keep a house plant alive. I live by myself and I'm like, this is so stressful. I can't even imagine it with homeschooling. Uh, but otherwise I'm doing fine. It's, it is what it is. How are you doing Liz? Um, well, there was the great Yankee candle incident last night where my cat pumpkin, see my life is just as difficult. Um, I was sitting quietly in my home with my cat and she got mad that I wouldn't give her food. And so she knocked over a candle and now everything smells like balsam and cedar. Everything. <laughs> I don't know. What there I'm are do. there are worse smells. You know, it could. It could have. It, I, not that I want to minimize your pain here, but it could have been worse. It could have been a fire. It could have been a candle that smelled. I don't know. Is that a bad smell? It sounds like it smells okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's one of my many Christmas candles. I have. I have like a problem when it comes to candle and and, and things that smell good. Uh, and we have now entered the time in which I not only survive, but thrive. I think every marketer's favorite saying throughout this <laughs> pandemic, which is cold weather, uh, putting up my Christmas tree tonight. I don't care if it's too early. It's 2020. Y'all can suck it. This is my joyous time. This is how I spark joy. <laughs> but no, otherwise things are fine. Um, I've decorated for the holidays because you know what? Why not? Time was already a social construct. And now like every week feels like it's 37 days long. If I it's want weird. it to be Christmas, it's Christmas. It's Christmas. I've said so. It is, it is, so it is decreed. But let's talk about another decree 
<laughs> another decree. And this decree leads into what we want to talk about today. So about, we're coming up on a hundred days ago. I said, hey, John, how would you feel about switching to a new role? And by that, I mean, you are now switching to a new role. Congratulations. Um, we had embarked as a company on deciding that we were going to practice what we preached. You know, we've always been an educational content focused organization, meaning we go out of our way to be the number one teacher in the digital sales and marketing space. We have content specialists, just like we coach all of our clients to bring on. We call those content managers. That's one of the primary audiences for this podcast. If you're one of them, hello, welcome. Um, but we wanted to take that a step further. And so earlier this year, we decided after a few weeks of restructuring how we did content, bringing in our sales team more closely into the fold so they were not just driving or influencing our strategy. They owned a big chunk of it and we worked very closely and directly with them. And then the next piece of that was moving you into what is traditionally called a content manager role. We call that here revenue and features editor just because of the way our team is structured. But John, I would like you to just take a couple minutes to explain the difference between what you were doing before and what you were doing now. Because the topic of today's conversation is, I had you write about your first 90 days as a content manager. And that made me think when I was reading back, when I was reading it, like I started thinking back on what it was like when I first got started. So this goes out to all y'all out there who are just getting started as content managers. This one's for you. So yeah, tell me about what you were doing before versus what I volunteered you to do. <laughs> Absolutely. So before I was, I think technically called a content manager, although it wasn't like a traditional content manager at, at mm -hmm. most companies. Uh, so much of our focus uh, in terms of our content strategy is on um, brand awareness and, and driving traffic to our website. So we write a lot of educational content. Uh, we react to news in the digital space and social media and kind of tech trends, et cetera. Um, <clears throat> and most of my work for really about the first year that I was at Impact was, I was in charge of news reaction articles. So um, editing those, publishing those, writing some, uh, and then I was kind of like an ad hoc editor for our general content strategy. I was doing a lot of writing, but not nearly as much as I'm doing now, um, but sort of an overflow editor, uh, helping out other people on our content team, writing content, interviewing subject matter experts and um, company leaders. <clears throat> so a lot of things that were, that are traditionally associated with, uh, with what we would call a content manager role, but not so closely tied to the sales team, not so closely tied to the questions that the sales team's getting asked on a day-to-day -day basis. So with the switch, which happened a few months ago, as, as you said, Liz, um, I work with you and with the sales team to turn the questions that they get asked by, by, by prospects and by customers into content that they can use to educate future customers um, who are probably gonna be asking the same questions and having uh, the same concerns and worries. So how much of a, dis a difference has it been 
between this role and the last one? Because I know when you and I first started talking about, you know, how's the transition going? How are you feeling about the new role? You mentioned there were a couple of things where it's like, well, it's a little different. It's a little more isolating. It's a little, you know, <laughs> you were you were getting settled into your new seat. How did that feel? Yeah, I think the biggest difference is just a, a pretty drastic increase of a focus on writing um, and a decrease in focus on editing. So I think in my old role, it was close to 50-50. You know, I spend half my time writing, half my time editing. Um, and now it's it's more like, you know, 80-20 or, or, or 90-10, where I'm doing, obviously I'm editing my own work, uh, but I'm doing a lot of writing, a lot of ghost writing, um, still doing a lot of interviewing and all the other administrative tasks that allow me to produce the content that I'm producing. But it's just, it's a lot of writing. So writing three articles per week, um, as well as other stuff like website copy, a buyer's guide, um, et cetera. Yeah. Now, to be clear to those who are listening, it, we've talked a lot about content managers in the past, as I just jokingly uh, mentioned, you know, obviously content managers are one of our core audience groups here, but just to be very clear, a content manager in an organization as we define it is the person who owns the content creation efforts of a company. And generally speaking, we recommend that you're publishing somewhere between two and three articles per week, but really that once you start scaling up and getting more complex as an organization, that can quickly scale from two to three to three to four, and sometimes even to the four to five range. So it's heavy content production work. So you had written this article uh, and I will link this in the show notes, or if you want to go to impactplus.com, it's called three essential lessons I learned in my first 90 days as a B2B content manager. You mentioned three things that were just near and dear to my heart as the most important three things, which is processes to stay organized. You know how much I love a good process. Devoting time each week to watching sales calls. That was a surprise. And we're going to come back to that. And then knowing the end result of each piece of content before you start writing. So why were those the three things that you walked away with as like, you know, it could be anything like to succeed as a content manager, that list could have literally been, if you're new, get to know your industry, sharpen your interviewing skills, sharpen your pencils. I don't know. That could have been a thousand <laughs> different things. How did you land on processes, watching time for sales calls? And knowing the end result of each piece you're creating is the three most essential core things you need to start with in your first 90 days. I think those three things felt like the most significant changes for me from the work that I was doing before. So I, I was doing uh, writing and editing and, and a lot of similar things, but but these three, oh, moving into a role that was essentially new for our company, you know, that maybe that's a little bit semantic because we were doing a lot of this work before. But uh, this official title didn't exist before. So uh, sort of a blank slate that I was coming into. Um, and so for me, there were a lot of aspects of the work I was doing previously that I could carry into this new role. Uh, but these three things felt, felt new and really distinct. Um, and so I, I, the, first, the first one was just the importance of building a process and um, Content creation takes takes time. Um, quality takes time. It's it's uh, a, a real fundamental belief of mine. And if we are planning on publishing, say two or three or four pieces per week, um, 
the the actual production line of each one of those pieces is is more than a week. You can't like start on a Monday and say, okay, I'm going to publish three pieces this week. Go, I'm going to get them all out by Friday afternoon. Uh, that's gonna that's gonna it's just not a recipe for success. And um, what what I find and what what works best for me is like as we're recording this on Wednesday, I. I have the three pieces that are going out next week already scheduled. Like those are, those are done. Those are um, written, optimized, mm -hmm. staged, scheduled and, and ready to go. So like right now I'm writing stuff and it's a little bit funny because we have the holidays coming up, but I have, I'm writing stuff that's not coming out for, you know, at least a week and a half or so. Um, and I'm interviewing for things that are going to come out after that. And in order to be successful, and I put this in the article, but, uh, like ha having a bunch of irons in the fire at any given time is to me is, is vital. I think writing is always for me kind of a stop and start process. Like when it's, when something's like really, uh, when I'm in a groove and a lot's coming out, like I, I feel like I can, I can turn out a lot of content at once. There are other times and Liz as a writer, you know, this too, I would imagine where like I'm banging my head against the wall and, and it's just not working now. Um, and it's really, really helpful for me to be juggling a few different projects so I can like put one aside if it's not going anywhere and focus on something else um, rather than being like, I, okay, I, I'm gonna take this one piece from stage one to stage, you know, stage final. Um, I, I at any time have, you know, five or 10 articles in various stages. Um, mm -hmm. juggling all of them, which can be a little bit stressful, but ultimately allows me to divide my time and move my my focus depending on where I'm finding I have a head of steam or where I'm finding I have impediments. So when you go back, let's go back to this processes thing for a moment, because again, as as I've already said, I love a good process. But what uh, what if I'm somebody who sits down and says like I I don't know what does it mean to have a process? Is it documented? Is it just sitting down and like deciding this is how long something's going to take, or don't I already have a process which is just like get up and go? Like what does the actual structure for you look like as a content manager where you sat down in this role you had never been in before? When was that moment you were like okay I have a process? What what were the structure items you had? Well, I don't want to take full credit because a, a lot of the process you built, you built Miss Liz. Um, so we use a, a software called Trello. Um, it's a web-based application where um, it's it's a series of, of cards and a series of columns and you sort of move the cards forward as you go from column to column, which means like from step to step in the process. So we use, I use a Trello board that, that you built that starts with, um, you know, question received or topic ready, you know, like when it, when we first get a topic from, from the sales team and goes through like interview scheduled and uh, draft in production, draft ready, draft in revision, ready to be staged, um, staged, but not proofed. Uh, and then ultimately proofed and, and, and scheduled and published. And so it's a really visible way, um, or I should say a really visual way of orienting each uh, each step and each project um, and making sure nothing gets sort of, you know, nothing falls through the cracks and making sure that each piece moves forward in a, in a like a sequential and linear way. Um, so it feels like there's nothing that can get lost as long as it's in there. 
and as long as you and I and whoever else is working on anything can communicate also in there. So Trello, you can link documents or transcripts or images or sound files or whatever you need. Um, so everything you need for that project is organized in one spot. And as it moves forward, it's, um, you know, it's, it's all there. So everyone's going to have a different process. Uh, even just today, I was thinking about writing or, or connecting with you, Liz, about changing one, a couple steps in this process. So I think it's fine to tweak and to kind of, you know, make it your own, but having something to keep you organized is for me really essential. Yeah. I, uh, first of all, I, that wasn't a tee up for you to be like, so Liz, let me just tell you how great you are. Cause I did have another structure question I want to get back to, but before I ask that question, I think you're right. You know, there's so much to be said for just like, I think sometimes people will get stuck kind of in mental committee being like, the process has to be perfect before we launch it. It's like, no, just go to market with the process. Like, that's why I like Trello so much. First of all, you can use it. It's free. So Trello is essentially just a high level project management software. You could literally go in there, sign in with a Google account or your email address and start using it immediately. Um, I did create a template that I can share in the show notes of like a base content strategy. So you can use that to get started, but it's so simple. Every lane corresponds with basically a life cycle stage. It's like it's being interviewed. Now it's being drafted. Now it's being reviewed. Now it's being scheduled. Now it's being published, blah, blah, blah. Um, but that is so critically important to, I think your success. One of my friends, Jesse Lee Nichols, who used to work at Impact, she's now the creative director at Loan for Creative, another agency. My favorite thing that she always says is a process isn't a process until it's out of your head and it's on paper somewhere. If it's just in your head, it's not a process. And I just, that has always been like my live and die rule. It's not a process until it's, you can see it somewhere. I, I completely agree. And, and, it's almost hard to put into words, but the mental energy it takes to, to carry around a bunch of things in a bunch of different stages in your head and like remembering where they all are and having a bunch of tabs open on your browser, it, that can just be, I think it can feel kind of crushing. Trello is open every day as the first tab on my browser. Um, it's the place where I orient my, you know, orient my days and, and, and plan out my weeks. And um, again, make sure nothing falls through the cracks. So it does feel at times like I am juggling five or 10 different projects in various stations. Well, it always feels like I'm juggling five to 10 projects in different stages of completion, but I'm able to do that without feeling stressed about it by having something like Trello. Oh gosh. Yeah. I mean, I remember when I first got started as a content manager, I mean, First of all, it's always a challenge. I think when you come in as a content manager, you are very hesitant to ask for budget for anything like for a project management software. So it's usually like, yeah, use Google Docs, use emails. It's going to be fine. And I remember the first three months in my role, I was just so completely miserable because it's not just about process. It's about your tool stack. Um, uh, so I was functioning without a tool stack, which means I didn't have a physical manifestation of what my process looked like. I had to carry thing, everything around in my head. And I also was constantly tracking things down via email or via Google Doc comment. And it's a disaster. Like it is a freaking disaster. I spent more time just administering my content strategy than actually doing the work 
which is not ever a position you want to be in. So I was, and what I mean by administering my content strategy, it's answering emails, digging through emails because I didn't have something like a Trello or another alternative that I've always really liked as well, but it's not free. It's called gather content. Like I had no thing to give to somebody to be like, if you ever have a question about where anything is, just go here. So imagine what would happen if you're starting out as a content manager, right? And you're going in there, you're working with people who are not familiar with what you do, right? They don't understand the tools they need, you need. They don't know what they don't know. But the one thing you have to know is that even though you are going to be publishing and showing expressions of your work product, your leadership is always going to want to know where things are. That's why you have content calendars, but your content calendar and your pipeline are not the same thing. Content calendars are for planning. Your things like Trello is for the actual pipeline and production. I love that I can just give those things to people and then they leave me alone. But when those things are absent, they're emailing you, they're slacking you, they're sending you carrier pigeons that crash into your window going, hey, where's that thing? Boom. And then it falls. Like it becomes a mess. So it's not just about the process. The underpinnings of that is what is your tool stack? You need a content calendar and you need some sort of project management pipeline. I think also, you know, in, in the, and this has been exacerbated by, by Trello, but so few of us, or I would usually go into an office um, and I, I think about how I would normally or, orient my space um, or organize my space, uh, like on a desk, I would always have like a like quote unquote, like inbox and outbox of, of um, like actual papers and, or, or like a, like a to-do list, like things that, that make me feel like I know what I need to do by the end of the day to know that I had a successful day. And so many of us are moved to home offices where we might not have the same, you know, the, the same, the same space, the same uh, resources and, having something like Trello feels like very visually pleasing, very clear. Um, and it feels, it feels like tactile rather than just because you actually like pick up with your mouse and drag these cards. So it feels like you are literally picking up something and moving it forward, moving it forward, moving it, feels it forward. So I feel so accomplished every time I do it. I'm like, boom, I did it. <laughs> yeah. Look at that. It's, it's, yeah, it's moving forward. And, um, I don't know. There's something about that that feels really relieving. Like you said, it feels, you feel accomplished. Um, but it, it's, I don't know where we would be without it. Crying. Also, I mean, that, that's probably like the strongest endorsement we could possibly make. I don't know yeah. where we would be without it. I do want to add one little uh, caveat here. Um, so just for the sake of full transparency, Trello is one of our clients. However, I created Trello and was using these boards long before Trello became a client. Although I will say as soon as they became a client, I was immediately slacking our salesperson who brought on the deal and said, how quickly am I going to become best friends with Trello? So I do just want to, for the full sake of transparency here, I am recommending Trello and would have done so with the same passion before Trello had become a client. I just would be remiss because, you know, it's just, it's, I think we should actually, say it. Yeah. Yeah. We should say it. It just feels unethical not to say it. All right. So that's process. That's tools. But the one thing I wanted to get to in your process, which I think 
is one of the biggest challenges anyone faces as a content manager. And you made a good point at the start of this. You know, we didn't, when I went to you, I didn't immediately say, okay, you're immediately publishing next week. You and I agreed that like, you were going to have a few weeks. I call them like, just, just for lack of a better, your get your shit together weeks. Like just, it's a new role. You needed to figure out how things were orienting, what your new thing was going to be. And then you and I picked a date and said, by this date, we're going to be going on three a week. My quest, I, my question is twofold. One, how did you come to where you felt comfortable? Like how far in advance should that go date be? And two, related to that, how did you develop your cadence of how quickly you were working? Because you're right. I gave you the Trello board, but literally all I do is say, here's the Trello board with the backlog of all of the topics from our content brainstorms of sales. You have to hit three a week. And whatever happens in between in terms of how quickly you're working on things, I don't care as long as the content shows up and it's awesome. And you've been able to do that. The content is showing up and it's awesome. So how'd you develop that cadence initially? And what recommendations would you have for people who are dealing with that? Well, I think the first question is how long should that kind of ramp up period be? Mm -hmm. And I think that that's going to depend on, um, on a bunch of things. And, and, a big part of that was that I was transitioning from within the company. So I'm already familiar with impact with you, with um, our publishing guidelines, our, our style guide, et cetera. So that allowed me to, uh, you know, to ramp up fairly quickly. It was about two weeks, I think. Yeah. Um, and what was essential, which I think will, will sound in line with what I was saying before is when I moved into the role, there were like maybe 15 or so topics that were, you know, were there for me to write about. Um, and you don't just start working on three. You know, that's why it takes a little bit to, to ramp up because you need to start working on not three, but maybe six or nine or 10 to start them all moving because the process is a long one. Like the process from start to finish, yes, I'm publishing three a week, but the part process from start to finish is like a two week process mm -hmm. of getting a topic um, interviewing a subject matter expert, writing a draft, getting, getting it back to the subject matter expert to make sure that um, I've well represented what they've said, staging, optimizing, publishing. That's not a week process, that's a two week process. For some pieces, it could be more depending on what other moving pieces are there. But um, so for me, it was like, if, if right now I have two pieces in every stage of that process, to start, I had all the pieces at stage zero. And so those first two weeks were about like some that were gonna race out ahead and get drafted pretty quick, others that were going to um, you know, move along a little bit more slowly, but ultimately get, as you said, a pipeline set so that um, production wasn't gonna completely fall off. Like It wasn't like I was gonna start and write those three and get them completely done and then be like, oh wait, now I have to write three more and start again. It was um, moving a bunch of pieces slowly forward so that the production cycle could be continuous. So quick question for you. I know one of the biggest challenges about working at a as a content manager is that often you're beholden to other people's schedules, right? It's very permissive in that way, in that you need to 
seek permission to get on somebody's calendar. And then it happens to be when they're available because that's how you're developing your content. You're not just sitting down and going, I'm going to dump all of my expertise out of my brain onto the page. This is about going to our web design experts, our lead generation experts, all of those different people. So have you been able out, even though it's so based on other people, do you have kind of like a set rhythm for your week where it's like, interviews are kind of front loaded or maybe they're scattered throughout or is it just every week it's it's a brand new day like what what does it look like for you i don't really have that that rhythm established yet i think i'm getting closer to it but like you said it's it's difficult because i'm working with so many different people who all have different schedules and trying to schedule meetings with them can be really can be hard like i should be interviewing three times a week or, or, you know, drafting three articles a week. Like I should be able to develop um, a, a more easy cadence, a more uh, regular cadence. Um, and I think that's something that I'm, I'm striving toward, but I'm, I'm just not there yet. Mm -hmm. uh, so some weeks are more interview heavy. Some weeks are more writing heavy, uh, you know, just as an example for this week, Yesterday we had a, an event that you and I were a part of. Um, I'm also working on a buyer's guide for the web team. So in a perfect world, it would be, okay, well, I have three articles to publish this week. Here are the steps I need to take. I can structure it in such a way that my, my weeks are routine and feel, feel consistent. But there are just so many things that come in that that sort of consistency hasn't really revealed itself yet to me. Does the lack of consistency bother you or chafe at all? Does it make it your job more difficult? It can sometimes, but to go back to, to what I said before, like, if I have so many pieces in various stages, um, if I'm hitting a roadblock or I can't get an interview scheduled, there are other things that I can work on as I'm, as I'm waiting for that. So it doesn't feel like I'm so dependent on one specific piece, one specific interview that everything else grinds to a halt if I can't get that scheduled exactly where I want it to be. So I don't see it as, as an impediment because there are always other things to work on. Hmm. I like that answer. Okay. <laughs> so let's pivot here for a second. And for a second, I mean, we're now moving to a different topic. So I remember when we initially talked about you starting to listen to sales calls. And it was something you and I had discussed, but we both realized at the time, like that was something where that's not something I think I had even done before. That's not something that's typically recommended. And I now, based on what you've told me so far about your experiences in listening to sales calls, you know, let's not get too ahead of it. What made you think as a content manager that you wanted to listen to sales calls? Well, it was definitely something that was on my mind and a few conversations I had with, with some colleagues made me think that this was, that it would just be beneficial to me. What um, conversations? Uh, like I, I talked to Chris Dupre about a few pieces that I was, Chris Dupre is our, our chief learning officer and a coach for, uh, for impact about a few of the pieces that I was writing. And he was, um, he had suggested listening to a couple calls to uh, like, make sure that this piece that I was working on was perfectly crafted to this particular situation. Um, and that kind of got me thinking that this is, this should be a regular occurrence. If I'm, if I'm writing content that is so closely tied to the sales process, 
I better have a pretty good idea of what that sales process is. Um, and I, I say this in the piece, I, I think sales typically um, are, are really open to sharing recordings and things like that. Sometimes they'll let you like sit in on calls. I, I don't think that's a good idea because I, I, having another face on a Zoom call is just, I think inherently distracting. But um, we have like repositories of all of these calls that are recorded. Um, you can see them in various stages. You can see different clients going through various stages of the sales process. Uh, and it's just been like eye-opening for me. It's been fascinating to watch. Um, and some like they're often long, you know, they could be like an hour and 10 minutes long. I, I usually won't watch an, an entire call for something, you know, that is that long. Um, but I, I, I love watching like an, an early introductory call or a discovery call. Um, and as a client moves through the sales process to see how they change, how their needs change, how their questions change, um, and to, to understand the work that, that the sales team is doing. Um, you know, and I, I wrote this, uh, I wrote this in the, I have the article in front of me and I wrote this and I'll, I'll read it. Like, I said that one of my takeaways was that sales is a way more lengthy, complicated process than I had imagined. I had pictured sales being more scripted and brief. It's more complex than I thought. Sales reps are not just answering questions, they're managing emotions, shaping expectations and building trust with prospects. To watch a, sales, a good sales rep in action is to see deft emotional intelligence on full display. And I had pictured, I don't know, in my head, like, you know, these like Arthur Miller images of, of how sales actually happen. And, and I, I pictured it being, as I said, like scripted, like, like more, more formal. And it's really like a conversation that takes a lot of twists and turns. Questions are never in isolation. They're always uh, in bundles. They're always representative of other emotions that might be below the surface and might, might not be expressed. Um, and watching sales calls allows sales to move from something that seemed abstract into something that feels really tangible and, and kind of concrete. So your recommendation here is that people should definitely listen to sales calls, but they shouldn't do so as an active present participant. It should be after the fact. Um, what are some of the biggest ways that has influenced, like, that's obviously a great learning experience to see that in action. I think it's allowed you to empathize and understand sales more, um, especially since, you know, in the, in the way, in the perfect world, the way we recommend it to clients. Uh, and if you're not doing this, as you listen to this, I highly recommend you start doing this. You have, what we have are brainstorms every other week with our sales team. And what we do is they sit down and they tell us, these are the questions we're asking or we're getting asked. And then from there with a little probing, with a little refinement, we then take those questions and transform them into articles because that's the whole point, right? Like when people are going to the internet to Google to search for something, what they're really doing is raising their hand saying, I need help with a question. I need help solving a problem. They can no longer do it themselves. They need an intervention, right? So be talking to sales. So how have, like, aside from the, well, I see what you do here and that's great. You know, aside from that, 
how does that influence the actual content creation act? Because if you're telling a content manager to start carving out regular time on their calendar to be doing this, to be listening to sales calls, what is the tangible outcome of that in your work? I think that's harder to describe, but I, but I'll try, you know, and, and I think listening to sales calls, I, I try to do it like 30 minutes a week. Okay. Um, so I just have a recurring meeting on my calendar, uh, a recurring event on my calendar to, to listen. And I have a, a file of you know, links to other um, saved calls. I think the biggest thing that, that it's taught me and how it's changed my work is just to remember how relational sales the sales process is, you know, it, it's very much like, especially in the age of, of Zoom, um, it's it's like two people having a conversation. And over the course of a sale, that person and the sales rep are, are, or those people at that business and the sales rep are really forming a pretty significant relationship. They're, they're getting like close, they're getting chummy. Um, and their rapport is, is like really, really clear. And so seeing that has, has reinforced to me something that you focus on often, Liz, which is, uh, you know, how our personality is an essential part of the content that we produce. And I, I think I have a tendency coming from an academic background, I tend to be more um, personally reserved, more uh, objective in, in the way I write for, for impact and watching these calls helps remind me that like my personality is not a, a deterrence or a hindrance. It's actually, it's an asset. Um, and in the way that I can, I too want to build my, build a relationship with who's ever reading the piece um, because that's going to make them trust me. That's going to make them like me. That's going to make them listen to me and being aware that um, relationships matter, even when we're, producing content. I completely agree with that. I mean, one of the things that I always coach people on is, you know, whenever I sit down to work with somebody on a piece of content, and I think we've talked about this on the show before, the first question is, I say, so who are you talking to? And they're like, oh, I think it's, I think it's our persona VP Vinny. I'm like, the persona, like, no, no, no. Tell me who this person is. You talk to them every day. Who are they? Right. And then I'll have them describe them to me like a person. Okay. So when they came up to you, you heard me doing this during the content creation bootcamp yesterday. I say like, imagine they just came up to you. Maybe they sat down with you at a coffee table in a coffee shop, or they walked up to you on the street. Now tell me, did they walk up or they run up? How do they look? Are they out of breath? Are they stressed? Do they look anxious? Do they look happy and excited? Like what, what's going on in their world that is bringing them to you in this moment with this question? And I think the power of listening to the sales calls, because I've actually taken your advice now and I've started put it, booking out a half an hour and doing it myself. It really reminds me not only the, uh, like, I think you're right. There's this inherent fear that showing a little human skin, a little personality ankle is like bad, that you need to be buttoned up and businessy to be taken seriously. And what it does is it helps you visualize like, oh, when I'm sitting down to write this article, I may not be the expert. Maybe I had to go and talk to somebody else. But by watching those calls, I actually visualize and know exactly who I'm talking to. I know who that person is. 
And that is incredibly powerful because the moment we start writing to an actual human being who's sitting across from us at a coffee table back in the before times when we were allowed to actually high five, you know, the moment we can do that is the moment our content becomes more powerful because that's the moment when we go from saying things like, if you would like to not go to jail, you may want to consider filing your taxes on time and reporting on your income, honestly, to things like, okay, so you need to file your taxes on time and report your income honestly. Otherwise they're going to send you to jail and you're going to deserve it. And you're going to know that you deserved it because you know, that's illegal. Like it changes the whole tenor of how you talk about these things. Right. And it, it's just that powerful moment of like, oh my gosh, that's right. I'm talking to a human. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, it helps you also understand like in context you know, Anne Hanley and everybody writes always talks about like, you have to be able to predict what the person is going to ask next when you're writing. Like that's how you kind of move yeah. through your pieces of content. Um, and when you're able to see that in action, like, oh, that is the next question they're going to ask. Like, it just yeah. makes you feel more confident and more comfortable and more human. And I just love yeah. that. Yeah. Um, so as we wrap up, you know, there was one other thing that you mentioned that I want to touch upon before we, we close this discussion. And that's, you mentioned understanding the end goal of every piece that you're writing. I remember when I read that as the three things, and then I, I read through the article, I'm like, oh, I get it. Initially I was like, what, what, duh. Like somebody gives me a topic and the end goal is to answer the question, you little genius. Like, we understand the end product of everything you're creating. Yeah, uh, I don't know if I phrased that perfectly, but but for me, it it just when I get a question from from the sales team, and I think about the like you said, our job is to answer that question as as thoroughly, as effectively, as in some ways entertainingly, as as um, vettedly as as possible. That's gonna that might look different depending on the question. So for me, and, and this, this isn't a hard and fast rule, but questions that are what I would call like what questions, like what happens when, or what can I expect with, or, or those sorts of things, um, those, that lends itself to a different kind of, of content than something that's like a how or a why question. Because to me, like a, a what question is, as you said, if you anticipate the next questions that someone's going to ask, that's going to be like a lot of kind of short questions like, well, what happens when this happens? But what about this? And, and what about this? And what are the drawbacks of this? And what's the structure of this? And what can I expect with this? Like all of those might be completely uh, tied together around one big topic, one big question. Um, for instance, yesterday when we were presenting at the at the content uh, at this at this content event, um, I took the question: Impact offers uh, paid media services, like so. So we'll help you uh, do paid ads on Google, Facebook, LinkedIn, things like that. And our sales team had a question of, "Well, we're not new to paid ads. We've done paid ads before. What can we expect in our first six months working with Impact?" Like that's the question from sales. And to me, there are so many questions wrapped up in that. There are so many related questions that are wrapped up in that, that um, to me, that, that like really clearly lends itself to a certain kind of output. Because if I'm asking that question, 
as a prospect and then eventually getting an answer back from me, you know, from, from John going through the sales team, uh, all of those related questions, if those related questions are answered in the piece of content, then I'm going to feel like, okay, they really get me. They really understand um, all of my concerns. They're kind of lockstep with, with where I'm at emotionally. So broadly, I, and I, I think this is probably something we could cover in more depth in another show. Uh, when I get that question from sales, I, I think, okay, this is going to turn into like, I'm going to interview a certain way. I'm going to write this piece in a certain way because the question is dictating the end goal, um, whether it's going to turn into like a, a Q&A style um, publication, whether it's going to be something that I'm ghostwriting for a, a company leader, uh, whether it's something that I'm going to be writing with one or more subject matter experts' opinions. Um, whatever it's going to be as an end point is, uh, is going to inform the whole process. So I try to figure that out as early as possible. I love that. Yeah, it's it's so funny. I, I think I mentioned this yesterday during uh, that was, we did a content creation bootcamp. I've referenced it a couple times. It was a hands-on virtual event that we run periodically uh, at Impact where people join us and we take them through different aspects of the content creation process. And one of the things I said that just totally reminded me of something you just said is that whenever somebody asks you one question, it's never just one question. There are usually about 18,000 follow-ups and objections that are wrapped up in a single question. And that's always the most important thing to remember is that like when you get something right in front of you and it's one question, that is the, the like, that is a loaded question. Yes. Yeah. Yes. All right. Let's put a bow on this. If you could give a brand new content manager who has listened to all this and they're like, okay, so I need processes and tools and um, I don't have a Liz and I, I don't have a team and it, it's just me and I don't have a cadence and I don't even know where sales calls are stored and what do you mean an end product and what is a content brainstorm and oh God, I'm now feeling like more crippled than before. What is that first thing they need to do? What's that one piece of advice you would tell them? Something that you say a lot, Liz, is, um, is, you know, guard your calendar, guard your time. And I think if you are just getting started, realize, as I'm sure you already know, but, but reiterate this to yourself, that content production takes time and quality content takes time. It's not a a one day turnaround of, of like, sometimes you can turn around an article quickly, but there's so many other parts with, with interviewing, with staging, with optimizing, like there are so many steps in the process. It's going to take a long time. Give yourself to the extent you can chunks of time, big blocks of time that allow you to just focus on writing uh, schedule recurring events. Like if you want to listen to sales calls, if you're going to have a meeting with sales, if you're going to have, you know, a meeting with company leadership or whatever it is, or, or uh, a marketing team huddle, like your, your calendar is your, your productivity. Like, like that, that's your productivity made visible. Um, the more you can structure your days so you can do this work and, and feel like you're not under a tight deadline, um, the, better, the better you'll be. As I said, not that, not that I'm the paragon of excellence or anything, but I like my, my, the pieces I publish three per week and like it's Wednesday. The three this week have already gone out. 
the three for next week are already like completely scheduled and set. And I'm working on the week after that. And if you can get into a position where you are in, in that kind of space, then you're not like watching a ticking clock, getting to a deadline, trying to get something out the door. You're always working on things that you have a little bit of uh, buffer and, and, um, and spare time to, to work at your own pace. I love that. I think my piece of advice would be related to yours. Remember that your effectiveness in your role is going to depend a lot on your ability to establish trust quickly within your organization, not with just the experts, but the people you work with, meaning they need to be able to trust that you're going to be getting things done, that they don't have to constantly be looking over your shoulder. But when you first get started in a role, you have to prove that. So the faster you can get a Trello board stood up where you just have everything visible so people don't have to ask will be helpful. The more you can allow people visibility in real time into the work that you're working on and when they can expect things to be completed, the more trust you'll be able to establish faster because every time someone feels like they have to ask you where something is, they may not subconsciously realize it and may not consciously realize it. It's happening on a subconscious level they feel like they have to check on you. So get your Trello board set up, make your calendar visible, be very clear when you walk in the door or if you're already seated and you're still trying to figure this out, sit down and say, okay, what is our go week? Cause that's what you and I called it. We knew that it was gonna be one to two weeks of you just kind of getting seated and like, what is the boom lights on go week. We're now at three a week. So that way they're not sitting there waiting for you to get settled, wondering when the lights are going to turn on. So be explicit, be clear up front and have all those tools in place so you don't have to spend more time talking about the strategy and the work that you're supposed to be doing instead of actually implementing the strategy and doing the work that you're supposed to be doing. Liz, can you teach me something about content? No. Yes, of course. So mine this week, instead of my usual essay length rants about something or some grievance, is something very simple. So often when you're creating a piece of content, you are going to be linking to content within your own website, but you'll also probably be linking to sources, you know, whether they're research reports or reputable news organizations or maybe somebody else. It doesn't matter who it is. It's going to be a third-party website. So you're going to be linking to content that is outside of your website. Quick rule of thumb. You spent all of that time and energy getting them to your website. You do not want them to leave, right? So what that means is when you internally link to a piece of content that is on your website, that can open in the same tab. If you're linking to something on a third-party website, you have to do this manually, whether you're using HubSpot, WordPress, or some other CMS. You need to check the box that says, open in a new window. That way, that native piece of content that they originally landed on does not go away, and they're more likely to stay on it longer. So I know that's like a little tiny thing, but it is something that can drastically increase the length of a page session or rather a, a, a visit session, meaning like how many pages somebody visits on your website within a single session. And it will also increase a really important SEO metric called dwell time, which is literally how long somebody stays on a page or on your website. 
And the higher those numbers are, the more pages they consume, the longer they stay on your website, the more likely they are to be like, oh yeah, they're super smart. Maybe I should give them some money in exchange for goods and services. But the minute you kick them out to another website, they're more likely to just close that and never come back to you. So that's it. That's your learn for this week. Internal links can open in the same tab. Third-party websites open in a different tab. The end. What are you reading? So I, I'm always reading a few books, um, and Show I off. am reading one about uh, about feature writing, which I, I've I've started, which uh, I, I'm enjoying. But the thing that I'm deepest in right now, I'm reading to my ten-year-old, which is which is I'm rereading Great Expectations by by Charles Dickens, which I I had not read. I have not read since I was like probably like. I don't know, 18 or 19 uh -huh. or something. It is so good. It's just so good. It's so funny. And my daughter's <laughs> 10. And my daughter's 10 and she's she's, you know, she's she's bookish, but like she totally gets it. She loves the humor. Um, my six-year-old listens sometimes. Like it's, I mean, some of the language can be can be complex, but the like the characterizations are just so good and the the language is so funny. Um and uh, I mean, it's just like vintage. It's like late Dickens, so he's like it's a little bit darker, but uh, it's just like classic Charles Dickens, like a classic novel to like dig dig into as you go into winter. So we're like maybe I don't know, like 150 or 175 pages in, and um, it's it's just fantastic. So you probably heard of it if you haven't. Uh, look it up because it's it's a masterpiece of Western literature that uh, should be on everyone's reading list. I always think it's funny when you have those books or those, you know, there's always those stories, books, things that we were all supposed to read, forced to read. Maybe we were told to read them and we didn't read them, but we told our yeah. teacher we did and like read enough online to like get away with the pop quizzes. But I, I always find that I recently reread The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald, which has always been like easily like one of my top five books of all time. I hadn't read it though in like a thousand years and when I reread it I'm like oh my gosh this is why it's a classic this is why it's so good and I think as we're going into the holidays this is the perfect time of year to do that like let's escape into some classics let's escape into some stuff where it's like you know it's it's like seeing that old friend you lost touch with and you're like oh my gosh this is why we're still friends this is why we get along so well you know and I just Absolutely. I love those feelings I love that uh, there's a story that Hunter S. Thompson um, like copied The Great Gatsby like on on his typewriter more than once, like verbatim from opening word to closing word to like learn how to write. Um, you know, just to follow Fitzgerald's example, that he actually typed out the entire manuscript more than one time to just revel in the genius. That's amazing. Maybe I should just go rewrite a bunch of Dave Barry essays, <laughs> sharpen my humor. I don't know. Something to think for for another time. Well, John, thank you so much for another amazing episode. Uh, and for everyone else, uh, bundle up. It's getting chilly outside. Although Be not safe. really. It's like 65 degrees here in November. Oh. Oh, here, I'm the little snow miser. I'm very excited to tell you that's going to go back to the 40s this weekend. So, oh. yeah. Suck right, it. Then. It's going to be <laughs> awesome. But yeah, bundle up. Please stay safe. Uh, we love you. And until next week, bye. Bye.